Welcome to The Pursuit of Life, where we share inspirational and action-focused stories to help you live a life of adventure. Proudly presented by Knightswood House. Now, please welcome your host, David Hazelwood. G'day and welcome to the Pursuit of Life podcast. And I'm joined today by Ant Williams, and I've been dying to get this guy on the show. So I was introduced to him by a friend, Luca Torini, who told me about his incredible story. And uh, we'll get into that very shortly. But Ant, it's a pleasure to have you on, mate. Yeah, thanks. It's a uh... It's been a while we've been talking, and it's great to finally be uh, here making making a podcast with you. Yeah, fantastic. Now, I'm going to start by taking you way, way back into the the past, and I'm going to start by asking you, what did you want to be when you grew up? Oh, I had no idea, absolutely no idea. So my mother, bless her, she her advice to me was, all you got to do is focus on the stuff that you're good at and that you enjoy and if you do that, then you don't have to worry. The rest will take care of itself. So I went right through school, high school with this philosophy, uh, got out of high school and still had no clue. So I just went and went surfing for a year, basically. Bummed around. And then she got back on my case and said, hey, you, you figured it out yet? <laughs> I was like, no, nah, but I really like surfing and all my other sports. <laughs> and, and she said, well, you should maybe look at doing something in sport. Uh, and that triggered something I was never really chasing riches. I do to have a great lifestyle with, filled with experiences and in particular as much as adventure as possible. So like I put my name down for a, a degree in physical education down at the University of Otago. And I went and studied a four-year bachelor's of physical education, thinking that I'll probably end up being like a physical education teacher. And I was okay with that. I thought that's going to be a great gig. Lots of holidays. And uh, <laughs> then at the end, I, I remember there was like some papers. There was a paper I was doing in sports psychology that I found fascinating. I'd never really thought about the mental side of sports performance. And uh, so I ended up focusing in it and doing like an honours and then, and then going over into psychology and, and deciding that I would actually go and do a master's degree in psychology just so I can work in this area of sports psychology and be credible enough because I've got a background in psych. And I spent another two years being becoming registered as a psych and I uh, spent eight years working in sports psychology. And it was like, it was fantastic. Such a good job because like I love, to be honest, I was never very good at sport. So the idea of being able to coach um, and make a career out of it, um, yeah, it was fantastic. It took me all around the world. I worked in rugby. Um, you know, one of my first clients was the Natal Sharp, just a super to our rugby team. Yeah, well, yeah. Yeah, then I worked um, in MotoGP for several years over in Europe. I um, worked with a lot of athletes who were doing quite dangerous sports as well, which yeah, has always been something I've been fascinated by. Yeah, I must admit when I was looking at your um, your bio and I saw the MotoGP thing, that jumped out because um, I ride a bike myself love watching the races actually my wife even more than me and yeah those guys are nuts yeah it's incredible um very unique and working with them was really interesting because they yeah they're, they're riding the, these bikes at you know even back then and they're sort of when it turned 2000 uh, year 2000 it was um there was the bikes back then were doing are capable of doing 340 kilometers per hour you know they're two strokes 500 cc yeah, it's yeah. insane the power and the speed that these bikes have and you know, you have no protection around you. No. Um, so it's quite incredible what they do. Yeah, we joked that, you know, they're, uh, there was a little bit of their brain cut out when they were young, and that was the one that said, oh, that's scary. 
Yep. Um, so you've gone from that. And what's your day job now? Well, after eight years doing sports psychology, I found that with the teams I was with, especially in motorsport, that at the end of each year, you almost had to go and find a new job every year because you didn't know if those teams were going to secure enough funding to be able to afford you the following year. Mm-hmm. Um, we were the only team in the paddock that actually had a sports psychologist. So I thought, man, this is that's not good. Um, <laughs> the, um, I don't have a lot of options unless I can convince other teams that they need me. So eventually, I to get away from all the travel associated with it and the, and the risk and go back to what I had done for actually for a number of years, which was to get, so to get registered as a psychologist, I had to actually go down a path of organizational psychology, educational psychology, or clinical. And I'd gone down this path of learning about organizations and, and behavioral psychology in, yeah, in corporations. And so I went back to that and I joined the human capital team at PricewaterhouseCoopers in Sydney, uh, who took on a role as a manager there, which really helped me transition out of sport back into corporate well into a more corporate a very corporate environment actually you yeah. know i, I was really struggling with that transition but um it was a worthwhile one and so now um, you're now running your own business in that area that's right i spent uh yeah the time i spent at peter King was was a couple of things mostly it was working and teaching consulting skills behavior to all the consultants on how to be really effective in relationship mastery and how to grow your client portfolio and then I spent eight years working in a boutique consulting firm where I was really just teaching leadership and occasionally working in Salesforce transformation work. Uh, and that's what I do today. I run a, a small team, small business, where we have actually quite a big associate network, but we work with some quite large organizations around Australia and developing the leaders at all different levels within the organizations. Um, and we also do a lot of work with sales functions that are typically underperforming not quite hitting their target or they need to be restructured and and have some a real injection of good strong sales leadership and and that's where we do most of our best work yeah well. and what's the most enjoyable thing about that for you oh well i just find it fascinating because the parallels between um how we think about performance from a sporting perspective has just real trans into human behavior and organization and the thing i've always loved about sport actually looking with, a, with any individual or any sports team, what are the things that actually block them from achieving their potential? And working with organizations is no different. You're asking the same question. What's limiting you? What's preventing you from being at your absolute peak of your game? And quite often it's behavioral or it's mindset based. Yep, sometimes it'll be skill based and we work on that. But often these things I work with that can have a significant, deliver a significant performance um, that's really achieved through through teaching and coaching and, um, and yeah, challenging and mentoring. Well, and outside of that, and the reason why I, um, or how I came across you is because of your, uh, your other little passion, your other pursuit, which is freediving. Well, yeah, the freediving came about uh, is quite of an interesting random one. So it's, when I was doing the MotoGP work, we were based in the south of France and there was, like I was just over there working in this, you know, this cool team in this beautiful place in the Côte d'Azur right on the Mediterranean coast that had no waves so I couldn't go surfing so I needed another sport and I also had a real epiphany one year where I realised that I was a total fraud because for years I'd been teaching all these athletes in these elite sports how to, you know, jump off taller cliffs race their motorbikes faster or surf big waves, whatever it might be. But I'd never done it myself. I'd never competed at an elite level. 
I'd never, in particular, I'd never done a dangerous sport. And the majority of my athletes were in dangerous sports. So I thought, wow, you know what I should do? I should go and take up a dangerous sport too. And I should apply everything I know about sports psychology to give me a little bit of an edge just to maybe progress faster. And that way, when I sit down with an athlete, I'll have greater credibility. So the athlete can say to me something like, oh, you know how you're just about to compete and you get this sensation, you feel like that. I'd be able to go, yeah, yeah, I know what you're talking about. And um, here's what I do. I really wanted that sense of connectivity, um, believability and what, and what advice I was giving. So I looked around and in the south of France, there were you know two or three sports that were kind of interesting and met all my criteria. So one was bullfighting. One was um, like jumping off cliffs, doing uh, wingsuit flying. And the third was freediving. So for better or worse, I gravitated towards freediving, which is where you go out into the ocean and you run ropes down into very deep water. And uh, it's a competition to see who can reach the greatest depth on one breath and make it back to the surface. What was your family's reaction when you decided that's what you were going to do? I don't think they minded, at least not at first, because the depth I was reaching were really shallow. <laughs> you know, I was, yeah. I was crap. <laughs> so uh, they weren't too put out by it, you know, basically a... I could swim down to 10 meters um, was about the sum total of it um, for the first month or so. So they weren't, they weren't fast. They were, they just thought it was quite neat. Yep. And then, okay. So it's gone a little bit beyond that now, because obviously if we go back um, and I'll take you back 12 months ago where you decided it was a good idea to go and dive under the ice pack in Northern Norway to set a new world record. How did that come well, it was sort of just an evolution of thought. I'd um, been freediving for, like freediving competitively all around the world for uh, 15 years. And a lot of freediving is about going into competition and each year trying to get a meter or two deep. And after 15 years, I found that I was just, I was stale. It, it wasn't motivating me anymore. I'd do pool competitions and the training was bloody awful. It's so such an uncomfortable sport. And if you're training six days a week, putting yourself through this remarkable level of discomfort um, for all these training sessions, there's got to be a real good payoff at the end of that. And I was finding yeah. that I was, yeah, just losing my mojo with it. And then I had a chance encounter. Um, there was a, a TV show that was being filmed in New Zealand called The Ultimate, um, The Ultimate Waterman. And um, I'd been invited to go over as an ambassador. I thought that was hilarious because I, I didn't think my profile was big enough to warrant anyone inviting me to meet <laughs> me on TV, um, especially given the company I was in. So they had also got Laird Hamilton, um, the renowned big wave surfer. Um, yeah, the, wow. The, the founder of Toe and Surf, founder of foil boarding, just this incredible innovator who had at one stage surfed the biggest wave ever recorded on camera. And it was on the front cover of Surfer magazine. Like this guy is just, he's, he is like a guy that I've looked up to. And yeah, if I could say that I ever had like an idol, it would have been him where I just yeah, go, man, yeah. this guy is phenomenal. Anyway, I, he, he came over to New Zealand to be another ambassador and I got to meet this guy and, and he had a really indelible impact on me because um, I, I was asking him a lot about the risk that he takes because he does, he's a real risk taker. Well, I thought a real risk taker. And so I wanted to compare notes on how he takes risks, how he views it, whether he feels he's a thrill seeker and what he's doing with the sport now. Because he hasn't competed for, for you know a long time. I think he's in the mid-50s now. And he said something really profound to me. He said, 
I decided long ago that the only way to innovate in a sport is to actually go out to the fringes of that sport and play around at those fringes to see what else you can experiment with to um, to try out and to learn new methodologies, try new equipment and and play out on the fringes of your sport. And that's where innovation should come from. And I thought, how do I apply that same logic to my sport? And I thought, well, what if I went out in this extreme sport to the extreme edge? What would that look like? And I quickly came up with it would be somewhere either at the North Pole or the South Pole. And given that the ice cover at the South Pole is about 1.5 kilometers thick, <laughs> I thought, hang on, well, let's go with the North Pole. And um, maybe I can go up there and, and do some ice diving. And that idea then perpetuated into, why don't I try to get the world record? I wonder what it is. So I looked. I looked it up. It wasn't hard to find that there was a Russian who had done a world record depth under the ice, straight down 65 meters up in the Arctic Circle. My first thought was, um, that's pretty deep, but why is it not nearly as deep as the world record? So I thought, well, I've got to go and find out. So I went up to Finland, met a guy up there, done 10 years of freediving under ice, and just tried to get down to something close to that 65-meter mark. The deepest I got was a single dive down to 50. It took me two weeks to, to get to that depth, and I learned that it was radically harder than I had expected not from a perspective of how um, physically challenging it is, but actually working out what you need to do in order to put yourself in a position where you can achieve the dive because of the cold factor, because of the darkness, because of all the associated elements of, of the temperature outside before you even get in the water. But on the basis of that trip, I decided to announce the world record attempt. And the world record was to happen a year later, up high up in the Arctic Circle, uh, in a place called Kirkenes. So... Obviously, a 12-month prep time to do it? Yeah, 12 months soon turned into 24 because we, we realized that once we'd done budgets for it, uh, originally I wanted to go to the North Pole, and it was going to cost 350000 US just to get people there and to have them stay um, near the North Pole and about the same amount again to get the production crew up there. And wow. I just Yeah, it just wasn't going to happen. <laughs> I couldn't fund that and neither no could, no could my sponsors. So, yeah, it took a couple of years and then I – I thought, well, look, as long as it's up and as far north as we can get in the Arctic Circle before we run out of areas where we can um, can access and safely stay and do this. So we ended up choosing Kirkenes and planned to get out on one of the fjords where the ice cover is really thick. You know, we were talking 1.2 metres thick. It took us nine hours to cut and prepare one hole to dive in. It's just oh such a gosh. So how many people did you have to take with you? So we took uh, one, two from Australia, one from Colombia, one from uh, from Finland, and then we had a production crew come. So in total we were, um, yeah, we were probably, you know, seven or eight people in total for most of that trip. So it's still a really significant undertaking. Yeah, yeah, it was. It was a significant undertaking it, in financial terms. I think our, our budget, uh, well, we came in pretty close to budget at around fifty-five thousand Australian dollars to complete the dive, and then production costs on top. Production of that. costs on top. Yeah, that's not too bad actually. I was thinking it was going to be a lot more than that. Yeah, I know. I, I think we did a good job of keeping our costs down, and we had some 
just some wonderful sponsors come in quite late in the piece to take some of that pressure off me to, to self-fund it because that was the original intent is I'll self-fund it. But it's a, it's a big chunk of dough to self-fund when you've got a, a young family. So you were really fortunate to have um, ASG Group, our primary sponsor, get on board really late in the piece and just really help us out to get it over the line. Yeah, wow. How, given you'd done the one, you know, you'd done two weeks up there, you got down to 50 metres. I mean, I've never free dived, but I've done scuba and I know there's kind of an exponential rate at which the, you know, the further you go, the greater the pressure and the greater the, the issues and things like that. So to go another, to go deeper, another 20 metres is um, kind of a, a significant effort. What did you have to do to prepare for that? How did you train for that? Well, I guess the first really critical thing to point out is that how just how different the experience of freediving is without any tank here to actually doing a scuba dive. So you, what, what would be a comfortable dive down to 40 meters when you're breathing compressed air is still a quite a challenging freedive because mm. you don't have that compressed air keeping your lung cavity the same size as it is when you're on land. So what happens by the time you reach 40 or in particular 50 meters underwater, your lungs have now essentially reached what we call residual volume where they can't collapse any further because of the water pressure around you. So that's they, they think it's about the size of a grapefruit that your lungs have then condensed down to in your, in your chest cavity. And you get blood and plasma filling the, the gap in your, in your chest cage, which is actually a completely normal thing. It's the part of the mammalian dive reflex. But it means that you get a very unusual internal experience and one that can be both uncomfortable and and very unsettling. And then when you combine that with the fact that you're going to go a lot deeper, you're going to be sinking underwater in pitch black darkness and zero degree water um, and going yeah, going all alone to a place where you've, you've really got no one else waiting down there to provide you with assistance, there's a lot of factors that make it both scary and extremely uncomfortable at the same time. So in terms of that, I mean, can you describe the the darkness and the cold and yeah and I went how how big an impact did that have mm. when we arrived in the arctic circle it was minus 36.5 degrees celsius so, <laughs> so tropical it's just so tropical so the first dilemma was how do we do anything how do we go outside how do we make the 1 hour journey by snowmobile to the site and, and stay warm enough for me to then get out and dive. So that was that was really difficult. We would have to do all my preparation and you know, get into a hot shower, put on my wetsuit, and then put these layers and layers of you know thick clothing on, specialist clothing to then go and get onto a snowmobile for an hour, get out into the middle of a, of a frozen fjord, and, and then basically we had this kind of little sauna tent big enough for two people to comfortably stand up in, you know, positioned next to this hole in the ice. And when you leave that, the relative warmth of the, you know, of the sauna, which incidentally really just took the edge off, not that it wasn't like a sauna where you could sit in there with your shirt off and kind of crack jokes. It was, you were in there like in your full wetsuit trying to get warm. You walk out of that, and the interesting thing is that if you if you can imagine you go snorkeling and you're looking into a beautiful turquoise water where you can see around easily, the water's warm, the ambient air temperature is fantastic, the sun's on your back. Doing a dive under the water in conditions like that is vastly different from doing calls. So doing a dive when the water 
is so cold and the outside air temperature is you know freezing and um, when you look into the water that's where you've drilled a hole in the ice where you cut this hole in the ice and you're looking into that water it looks like you're staring into an oil slick you see nothing there's no radiated light if you stick your head into that water it's like someone's jabbing needles all into your face and forehead I would literally have to put my face into the water for three seconds and pull it out. Wait for maybe 15 seconds until that, that pain left and then immerse again. I would do that for two or three minutes before my face was numb enough for me to actually enter the water. And then once you're in the water, boy, when you actually roll over to start doing a dive, there is just no reference point around you. So you're going deep under the ice. That ice is super thick. Uh, it's freezing cold water. And um, your hands and your feet in particular are the first things that will get symptoms of hypothermia uh, and your face gets um, the most pain. And as you're swimming down, you just, yeah, you, all you can see, even if you have the brightest torches on your, your front and back, there's nothing to reflect that, uh, refract that water, um, light back from you, um, from those torches. So you just, you're in pitch black darkness, yeah, for the whole way down, which is about a minute and a half down, a minute and a half up on one of those deeper dives. Wow. Do you wish you could do more with your money? Knightswood House is a financial advisory firm that specialises in working with successful business professionals who share a passion for endurance sports or other adventures. People often come to us for one of three reasons. One, they aren't where they imagined they'd be financially at this point in their life. Two, they feel frustrated that they are earning good income but aren't doing more with it. And three, they are concerned that they don't have a strategy to make the lifestyle they're working so hard for feasible, both now and in the years ahead. Underlying all of these are nagging doubts about the future and a concern that they aren't maximising the opportunities created by their hard work. We have a nine-step process we take you through, which will simplify your financial affairs and take much of the hassle out of your hands provide you with certainty that the strategy you choose to implement is right for you. And finally, get rid of those nagging doubts and give you confidence that you are on track to achieving the things that are most important to you. Ultimately, we can help you leverage your professional achievements into financial success so you can enjoy a life that is truly remarkable. For more details, head to knightswood.com.au. Okay, back to the show. So, okay, where were you training and how do you try and simulate what that's going to be like? Because I'd imagine that takes a – it's a completely different mental space that you need to be in just dealing with the the nothingness. That that part didn't worry me. In fact, that's the piece that I thought of, hey, I've got an advantage in terms of, um, you know, my my readiness to be able to accept that this is going to be – incredibly isolating incredibly dark you know journey that i've got to go on because i when i'd learned to free dive i I didn't stay in the med free diving that long before i went to new zealand where i grew up i went back there to to live for a few years and i was diving in a spot called lake pupuki which is very very dark and although it's not anywhere near as cold it's so spooky because you just can't see anything at any stage you can't see your hand in front of your face even when you're near the surface so because I'd done four years of diving there, I actually had spent so much time applying different techniques and sports psychology to get myself prepared for that mentally that I really kind of got quite comfortable with it. So if anything, I, 
I quite enjoy it, um, which is a strange thing to be saying. The, the, trips, the trip down on each dive I did over there, I genuinely enjoyed it. It was, apart from the discomfort that was happening, I was quite at peace with the fact that I couldn't see. I wasn't at peace with the amount of equipment failure that I experienced. That was really um, quite a painful thing. But in terms of dealing with the, quiet, the cold and, the, and the, the darkness and the depth, yeah, I was actually quite okay with that. When you say equipment failure, what, what happened? It's not so much failure as it is um, lack of foresight. I'll give you an example. So we, I had a, uh, you know, the guys would do a lot of uh, looking after my equipment and one of the guys had left my monofin. It's like a mermaid's tail, like a, you know, a fin that you deep dive with. It, it has high density rubber foot pockets and they'd left it on the ice for two hours. And, and I put my, I put bare feet into that, into those foot pockets. And um, so when I picked up my fin, not just one occasion, but multiple occasions to dive, the fin had frozen solid and we had no choice. I had to put my feet into it and would be wearing it for about 18 minutes. And so there was at least, there was more than one occasion where I, I, I couldn't stand afterwards. I couldn't physically stand up because my feet were just so, um, so cold. That, that was of our own doing. But there were other things like um, not anticipating just how fast batteries will drain and torches. So I was, you know, more than one occasion doing a dive down to 60 or 70 meters where the torches just wouldn't work so just making it worse for myself because really didn't even have the ability to see even five centimeters in front of me where i might have been able to see at least a rope to give me some comfort i couldn't see anything wow so were you physically holding the rope on the way down well this is the thing is you normally run one hand down the rope in fact it's not uncommon to even shut your eyes and run your hand down the rope but it's critical that you can feel or see the rope Otherwise, yeah. how do you know if you're moving? Yes. So the problem was I couldn't see the rope and mm. I had seven millimeter gloves on and they were like, oh. um, they were like um, what do you call them? Crustacean hands where you kind of like mittens. That's the word I'm looking for. Yeah. They were mittens. So <laughs> you've got no finger dexterity, trust me, um, and seven mil mittens. So I couldn't gauge the speed very well. That's disconcerting. And freediving is a sport where if you're doing trying to do something that's close to a record depth, you want things to be comfortable as possible and you want them to be familiar. And so when you lose something as, as fundamental as your sense of how fast you're moving, it just so it just throws you, just totally puts you off. And it's likely that you'll turn around and abort the, those dives. And because we were having so many things that were throwing me off and we only had a, a tight window of time, I just had to just yeah, push through. Wow. Which, yeah, I'd imagine doing that though, heightens the the degree of risk too well, i wouldn't push through on anything that i felt was risky so we'd just look at it at each of those moments of equipment failure or otherwise and and just you know really make educated informed decisions around whether it was still safe to continue and at no stage did i think that there was something significant enough where i shouldn't continue so it was things like sd cards not being put into cameras therefore we'd have no record of the dive um the issues with the fins, swapping out goggles and then having, like I swapped out a set of goggles and had the lenses implode into my eyes at 50 metres on one dive oh. to 67 metres. <laughs> we let media hang out with us on, on one of the deepest dives and just before I was about to roll over and leave the surface, one of the journalists yelled out, hey, aunt, how do you feel? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Wanted to do an interview with me when there's 30 seconds before my dive. Um, yeah, lack of judgment. And certainly a lot, not life-threatening, but pain in the ass. Yeah. 
It's like I'm kind of trying to concentrate here and um, yeah. Yeah, just a little. <laughs> oh, wow. So given that, I mean, you know, clearly freediving has got a reputation as being an incredibly dangerous sport, but you don't sound like someone who would describe themselves a, as an extreme risk taker either. So how do you balance that and you know, what steps do you go through to put some controls around that? So as you say, you're, you're feeling comfortable with the process. So for me, there's, there's two parts to, to the answer that I'd like to give. So the first part is around, I agree that there's a perception that the sport is extremely dangerous. It's not warranted. It's not a dangerous sport. I know you're probably thinking, yeah, come on, mate. It's an extreme sport. Even I've said in this interview, it's an extreme sport. But the reality is, is that it's a sport that if you follow all of the rules around safety, then it's actually a very safe sport. Um, I've been doing it for 18 years and not once have I thought that I would die. Um, I've had scares, but it wasn't, it was more my brain having a, you know, a moment rather than anything genuine. But if you break those rules around safety, then it can very quickly become life or death. And, and that's a hard reality of our sport. And over the years that I've been freediving, there have been, like in every instance when someone has died, it's been because they broke one of those fundamental rules. I'll give you one of those rules. You can never dive alone. You, like I won't, go to my, I won't even go to my local swimming pool and hold my breath for one minute. If there's not someone actively standing over me watching me, I can hold my breath for eight minutes, but I won't do one minute breath hold in a swimming pool without someone supervising me. And not just a local pool guard, I mean someone who really understands the signs of someone who's in trouble when they're doing breath holding so when you break those rules then then yeah it's it can so quickly turn really really bad so there's the perception that it's a high risk dangerous extreme sport the other part is do i see myself as a risk taker um and i actually do i think that i've learned how to take positive calculated risk in my life but i'm not a thrill seeker i think there's a really important distinction so someone who has low skill at any particular sport or an activity and pushes the absolute limit of that sport is a thrill seeker. So if I went to do a base jump or a wingsuit, then I'd be a thrill seeker because I've got zero skill in those things. I'm probably going to kill myself. Yep. But when you do a sport and, you're, um, and you've been doing it for more than a decade, you've done 10,000 hours at that sport and you're trying to go an increment deeper or an increment further than you've been before, as long as you do that, and you do it in a really well, strongly supervised way that isolates, minimizes, or eliminates your risk. It's it's not it's not a dangerous sport anymore, and that's yeah, my right. honest view on it. Yeah, it's an interesting way to look at because I you know before we spoke, I was um, I was doing some research on freediving, and they were talking about the the same sort of thing where the number of deaths in competition, which is so tightly regulated, is really really small, but it's it's the unregulated, you know, people just going for a dive themselves, or you know, or what, and not following those rules. It's where um, where all the the problems tend to surface. Yeah, the, the probably the most the greatest level of incidence is one of two things: people holding their breath in a home swimming pool at any age. That's one of the like the greatest risks. And the other one is spearfishing when you're chasing a big fish and you're down there by yourself and you think you'll stay there just a bit longer at the bottom. Yeah. And then you don't quite make it back to the surface. Those are the two, I think, categories of greatest risk. Yeah, well, wow. given the you know the planning and the the steps and the risk mitigation and and things like that, and also learning how to um, how to push yourself, 
How do you think that um, freedivings improved your professional performance? It actually took me a while to figure out what the crossover would be. But I think the greatest thing that, that freediving has taught me that is really translatable is this ability to stay really calm under significant pressure. It could be a moment of performance like standing up on a stage and giving a speech in front of a large crowd. It could be dealing with a moment where you've got to give someone difficult feedback or, I don't know, deliver bad news, anything like that. When you're in those moments of, you know, a moment of performance where you've really got to step up, I think I find that now I'm a lot more unflappable, a lot more poised. And when people around me are having greater difficulty dealing with it, then it can be a very calming influence to have someone that that really just takes it in their stride and thinks really rationally and just kind of works through the situation in a really positive way. And I think that that's one of the greatest things that you'll learn from from taking risks. There's, there's actually more risk, I think, in not taking risks because, you know, you learn so much about yourself, the way you develop and think of things differently, the way you pursue opportunities. And in organizations, the thing that I often see is people are – we're naturally reluctant to change and organizations change all the time. You know, there's just, especially, you know, in today's age, you know, the environment now that we're a global economy uh, and there's, it's a hyper competitive environment where everyone's looking for a competitive edge. If you're not able to reinvent yourself as an organization, you know, and keep, you, you just don't stay ahead of the curve and your competitors will go past. But the problem yeah. is, is that there's, those organizations are run by individuals and as individuals we like comfort we like doing things the way that we've always done it and so if you're not if you're not good at taking risk and welcoming change um, and welcoming you know this concept that that there could be a better way of doing something and challenging the norm then it actually holds back those organizations it stifles creativity you know really blocks the very change that organizations need to make so i feel that freediving has taught me that it has been hard one i think at times but but it's really got me understanding the importance of being able to take that sort of really positive calculated risk. Yeah, certainly pressure is uh, somewhat different when you're 70 metres under a metre and a half thick ice on one breath than if you're you know, standing in front of a crowd waiting to give a speech or something like that. It's um, very, very different, isn't it? Well, it is and it isn't because I, I actually think the same principle applies no matter what the level of risk is. So if you're someone who hates getting up in front of an audience to give a eulogy or a speech and, and you know, you're really held back by that, then, then, those, then it holds you up. It's still impeding you from, from being the person you want to be and, and have, you know, deliver a great performance when it counts in a moment in your life. So it actually doesn't matter how big the challenge or the risk is. It's actually about what happens to you, what blocks you, what prevents you from accessing the, the part of your mind that enables you to perform how you want to perform. I think by having exposure into a sport that, that really pushes you to be more and, you know, you've got to take a bit of this, you know, take on some discomfort and change, constantly change and evolve the way you do things, then you learn those skills and you learn that if you get up one day and you deliver a speech and it's a clunker, that you go, right, I'm going to see what I did wrong, get feedback, it's going to be painful getting that feedback, but then I'm going to do something about it. And when you have that mindset, it makes you very, very good at what you do because you're always open to feedback and you're never afraid of change. Yeah, no, that's very true. Now, the the techniques that you use or that you've learnt to quiet your mind, particularly, yeah, I mean, I'm, so I know when I'm running a, a marathon or something like that, you know, there's this constant battle of wills between your body, which wants to stop, and your mind, which is trying to force you on. But 
I'd imagine that it's very different in some respects when you're uh, when you're diving. You've got to keep things very peaceful, don't you, so that you um, so that you can get back to the surface. How do you do that? Oh, yeah, it's a really good question, uh, and there's a lot of aspects to it for me. I think if the dives, if the dive, if everything is going as it's supposed to in the dive, then like it's quite. It sounds really simple, but I pretty much have a rule that if the dive is going the way it's supposed to and I had really good breath of the air in my last breath and the conditions are great, then whatever depth I've announced, I'm going to it because I know that I'll be able to swim back up. Otherwise, I wouldn't have commenced the dive. So I take that decision-making away um, because I don't want to do it when I'm feeling the discomfort and the pressure. But if something's going wrong on that dive, then I'll really slow down and um, rather than make an immediate decision, I'll really slow down, like physically slow down the dive and I'll, I'll assess what's happening and whether it's a real threat, therefore I should stop and turn around or whether it's something I can overcome. So the difference would be um, something that I can overcome is I might go, oh, my ears are sore and I don't think I've, I've been equalizing correctly. I'll slow down, I'll fix that, um, that issue, and then I'll quite casually carry on going down, even if I've stopped for a period of time. But if I'm going down and I'm thinking my lanyard has got wrapped around the rope, it's dragging me down, or there's something you know wrong with my equipment, then I might go, this is actually presenting me with a risk. I'm going to stop, and if I can't remedy it, then I'm turning around. Especially if it's a, if I've announced a really deep dive, then I'll, I'll just quickly abort it. But it's not very often in the last 10 years that I'll ever abort a dive. I, you know, Only if it's genuinely something that will stop me going to the bottom, I'm going to the bottom. Yeah, well. Now, you've got um, a couple of kids, don't you? Yeah, I've got a... 13-year-old son, Luke, and a 11-year-old daughter, Chloe. How has your pursuit of things like, you know, the ice dive and things like that, how do you think that's impacted on them? I'm, I'm thinking in terms of positives here, what they've, what they've learned, what they've benefited from, from seeing you trying to achieve these sorts of things. Well, hopefully they're proud of what I've achieved. I think that they are. I, I shield them from it a bit, like, at home, we I don't talk about freediving much. <laughs> might sound weird, but like I don't have any equipment in the house that would suggest to you that I'm a freediver. There's nothing on the walls that would suggest I'm a freediver. I don't have medals anywhere or pictures, nothing. So the kids just have a very normal upbringing. They know that I go out a long way out on my jet ski, you know, with another diver to go diving all morning on weekends, or you know, if the conditions are good, I'll go out midweek. So they know that I go out and they know that I go deep. But I think that they also know that I'll always balance it with time with them and those sorts of things. And so I think that it's really net positive for them because everything so far in the sport has been it has been a really positive experience. Even the things that have been failures have been great opportunities to talk to them about why something didn't work out. I do start taking them to competitions a long time ago because sometimes, well, in competition, I push really hard and there's always a risk that you could black out. I don't like the idea of my kids seeing me black out. Um, yeah. But it'd be like taking your kids to a boxing match where you were fighting and, and, and then watching you get knocked out. I think that would be awful. Nothing against boxes, but it just, yeah, for me, that yeah. wouldn't work. So, yeah, I shield them from that a bit. But I do talk to them in, in terms of effort around committing to something and seeing it through around that, you know, this, this message that, it, um, you know, work smarter, not harder. And I kind of go only to a point, guys. Like if you're not prepared to put the effort in and to really work hard at something like I do in my sport, you're not going to deliver 
your full potential in that area. So I try to just give them simple lessons that I've taken away from my freediving. Yeah, because I want them to see it as something that, that, you know, for whatever they decide to do, that they can aspire to be as good as I've reached in my sport and far beyond it, you know, in whatever area they choose. So it's pretty simple. But, yeah, I think they do see it as a positive thing. It's really interesting that one of the things you touched on was the fact that um, you, know, you you talk to them about the failures and what you what you can learn about that because you know I've got two kids who are you know, similar ages actually you know talking to friends about it and most kids have no idea what their parents do and you know they kind of go out for work every day and come home and um, you, know, you share the triumphs and not really you know you might bitch and moan a little bit about some of the things that didn't work out but. They don't really get to see that, and it's often only in sport that um, they can actually see you try something and fail. So I actually, funny you're talking about surfing. I actually learned to surf with, um, with my eldest daughter Savannah over over summer, and one of the the abiding memories is me wiping out on about a you know thirty centimeter wave, but um, wiping out, getting you know falling off, making an absolute goose of myself, coming up and just seeing her standing there in hysterical laughter <laughs> because she'd nice. seen me fail like that. <laughs> what lesson do you reckon she took out of that? <laughs> That's pretty funny. No, yeah, your old man's not perfect. No yeah. <laughs> Oh dear. Um, have you got any any challenges that you're working towards at the moment? Any kind of big plans now? I gave myself a really good break after coming back from the ice diver record um, attempt, and now I'm just back in training to compete or contest in the New Zealand Depth Nationals. Uh, that's going to be midway through March, so I'll, we're just starting to ramp up for that now. I'll head out tomorrow morning and try to do a couple of dives down and around. Not, not deep, deep, but sort of 60, 60 metres deep at the moment. We can't get much deeper water than that where I train down here in Torquay. And then closer to the to the comp, I'll head to New Zealand to Lake Taupo and, and, yeah, get some deeper work done and see how we go in that comp. It'd be fun. And then beyond that, nothing really. I'm toying with the idea of, of doing a trip somewhere really cold again, like either Patagonia or maybe down to the down Antarctic. And But it would be more of a... More of a journey just to really experience those places, to, to do more diving under ice, but, but more to, for me, it's actually a personal thing, wanting to see what's happening in these areas when it comes to climate change and to the animals and to that natural habitat. I just, I just love to go and see it firsthand to be informed about that and to see those places while they're still so beautiful. Hopefully they stay that way. Those things do concern me as I know they concern so many of, of us in the public. And I just yeah. think, it's something that my freediving might enable me to do is to go to these incredible places and go and see and experience it, literally being immersed in it and around it and see um, what's changing. I think it's and it's really interesting at the moment with the, the summer that we've, um, well, I suppose at this point we're still going through it, but the summer we've just had with the fires and so many people you know, being directly impacted, particularly in, um, you know, in the large cities. I think in Australia, certainly, there's a big change when more people have now realised that this is not some sort of theoretical thing that might affect future generations, but it's actually affecting us now. And, you know, for when you get an opportunity to go out and um, and see some of these, um, these really pristine conditions and see how they're being impacted, 
it's really important that uh, that more people start uh, start thinking about that and are aware of it and are actually making changes to try and um, protect them. Yeah, I think certainly doing a trip like that will really change my own awareness and my own behaviour and hopefully that of my family. So, yeah, it's something I'd really like to do. Yeah, fantastic. Before we wrap up, though, there is one thing that I ask all guests to come up with, and I know I'm putting you on the spot with this, but it's a challenge for the the listeners on the podcast. And what that basically is is something that they can do over the next week that will make a difference in their lives. So, you know, if I think about some of the the things that we've spoken about today, you know, we've talked about the ability to control your mind and quiet in your mind and just the the things that you do around um you know, you're diving. So if there was some some challenge that you could put out there for people to do, obviously not diving to 60 metres for very many of us, but uh, what would you suggest that we go and do? Well, I think given our conversation, the one I would want to share is, is to find, to think of something that actually does scare you. And particularly if you've got something that's coming up or something that's just recently happened that, that maybe you found really brought your um, heart rate up that you felt anxious about or nervous about going into, which is a real moment of performance for you. And I want you to, I would encourage, you know, the listeners to think about um, reflecting on that moment. What was your mind saying to you? What was your internal dialogue? You know, even, even sit down and kind of recreate that moment where you were doing this thing that made you anxious and play it back in your mind. And the more realistic you can get, the more likely it is that you'll be able to recall what your mind was saying to you. And then write it down. It's often you'll find that when you write it down, you'll find that what's happening is that voice on your shoulder is feeding you with the most destructive, negative, internal self-voice. And if you think about if you if you were trying to do that thing, maybe just use the example of standing up and giving a speech, and someone was literally standing to you as you were giving that speech saying, you are so bad at this. You suck. Oh, my God, everyone is bored to tears. Then you'd never be able to do a very good speech because you're so upset about this feedback. But we do that to ourselves subconsciously um, and we allow it to happen and we don't stop it. So I wouldn't put it the challenge out there. Think of something that you've done recently that made you anxious. Relive it and then capture those things, even if it's just the top three or four things that your mind said to you. And then that's part A. Part B is to then for everything that it's your mind said to you to come up with a, a super positive response. So for each of those things, you come up with a positive response. And then with the next things that are coming up for you that you actually think will also create that sort of same response, you know, some anxiety, knowing full well that you'll get that same internal voice. Start by going into that, to your preparation by slowing down your breathing and relaxing, but actually playing out in advance the things that you want your mind to say to you. And it's a really powerful technique called reframing, but it takes a little bit of effort, but it's actually, it really works. And so I do it on a dive. It used to be that it was when I was on a dive, every you know, every dive I'd get down about 30 or 40 meters. I remember my brain saying to me, you're dying. Um, <laughs> and um, this is death. <laughs> like my brain said that to me. And uh, yeah, it doesn't make for a good dive. And so what I do now is when I dive every 10 meters, my brain is saying something different to me and all of it's positive. It's things like you got such good breath off the surface good breath off the surface i'll get to 20 meters and my brain will be saying oh best part of the dive now i can glide 
30 meters. Yeah, it's getting a bit uncomfortable, but I'm on an absolute bender technically. This is a perfect dive. So the whole way down, my brain is feeding me this super positive mojo and it, it changes your entire experience and it makes me perform better. It makes me more relaxed. It makes me access parts of my brain that I know I need to access to deliver well. Um, and anyone can do it. It's a simple technique. It's called reframing. Yeah, it's a simple technique, but it takes a little bit of um, a forethought and um, an actual preparation to get it to work properly, doesn't it? That's right. Yeah, that's yeah, right. Fantastic. Well, thanks, Anne. I've really enjoyed talking to you, and I'm, I'm so glad we've been able to, um, to get together to have this conversation. Yeah, likewise. Thanks, David. Uh, thank you. And um, for the listeners out there, in the show notes, we'll have links to, um, to Anne's website, so that you can go in and uh, and follow up with him, and um, I assume that people can get in contact with you through that if there's um, if there's anything that they want to follow up with you. Yeah, that's right. And if they're really interested in this um, area of around this uh, idea of risk taking being a positive thing, then you could check out my TED talk. So I spoke for TEDx in Melbourne a couple of years ago, um, and you can just find it on on YouTube. Um, yeah, if you're interested. Fantastic. Thanks very much, Ant. My Cheers. pleasure. See you. Thank you for listening to The Pursuit of Life. To learn more about how Knightswood House can help you live your life of adventure whilst planning your future, visit knightswood.com.au.